Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Simon from Handprint. And before we get into Handprint, which is an amazing company, um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm excited to talk about it, I thought we'd start just with a little bit on your background and your journey. And we're sat here, I'm delighted to say, um, face to face for a change. <laughs> we're both in Singapore and we're in um, your office in the university here. So you're a professor, which is um, super impressive. So uh, <laughs> how, did, how did you get to become a, a professor and, and what really um, took you down that path? Oh gosh, that takes me back quite a long time. Um, so, so basically, I mean, I, like everyone, I think uh, originally I'm from Belgium, so I ended up going to university, studied applied economics and business studies, and got really frustrated with the core assumptions underlying economic activity, basically rational economic man and all of those things. And I ended up writing my first dissertation on a topic called Buddhism and Economics. So what would be uh, a global capitalist system if the goal was not profit maximization, but the alleviation of all suffering? Wow. So so basically I was a weirdo at university. <laughs> and so I, when is this roughly? Oh, so this is between 2001 and 2006. So it's a five-year degree that I did. And so I was working in the ethics department for my dissertation and I uh, talked to my supervisor and said, I think I want to do another major in business ethics and sustainability and he said you do realize that if you do that you're never going to be making as much money <laughs> than if you don't do that and I said no I don't care and so I ended up going to the UK to Nottingham University to do a major in CSR and so corporate social responsibility and business ethics and from that I went traveling for a while went back to Belgium and then I started work as a sustainability consultant focusing on the intersection of innovation and uh, environmental sustainability. Okay. I did that for about two years. And during that time, I think I learned a lot. I had fun. I wrote a book on sustainable business models. But I also was a bit disappointed by the, the reality of consulting work, especially for a small boutique firm, that a lot of the work you end up doing is just basically PowerPoints. And then you create a lot of potentially valuable ideas, but they're not really getting executed. So what I wanted was to be able to spend more time and go in depth into problems that I was interested in. And as a consequence, a PhD was a very natural next step. I uh, looked around, ended up at Imperial College in London and did my PhD under the guidance of Professor Jerry George, who is one of the most famous academics in, in management literature, uh, focusing on entrepreneurship and innovation. And after a little bit of convincing, I managed to get him on board with me, allow, with me doing a bit more work in the kind of sustainability space. And then, um, yeah, so that was about, that was supposed to be a four-year program, but after just under three years, I got called into his office and he said, you have six more weeks to finish your PhD because I'm leaving, I'm moving to Singapore to become the Dean of Singapore Management University. Wow. And I said, but I have 13 months. And he <laughs> said, yeah, you had 13 months, now you have six weeks. Uh, but he said, but if you manage to finish, I'll take you to Singapore if you want. And so yeah, I ended up uh, working a lot for six weeks, uh, managed to get through the dissertation and then moved to Singapore on a complete whim. I had no idea what Singapore was like I, because I was so busy. I hadn't even Googled where it was. That's how bad it was. <laughs> right? And so, so I arrived here in January 2015, uh, initially as a postdoc and then became a 
uh, yeah, a professor in July 2016, and I'm still an assistant professor here, so focusing on the intersection of digitization and sustainability. And it's really that research that has given rise to Handprint and also my, my social enterprise, uh, Global Mangrove Trust, which uh, we're both founded in Singapore in the last six years. I definitely want to speak about the Mangrove Trust, actually. So um, quickly, when you in 2007, when doing the consultancy and all that stuff, obviously that's you know quite some time ago now. Was it? What was the sense then that, that this was extremely niche and, and or, or was there more? momentum back then because um, it's interesting to me to see sort of this journey that companies are on and mm. entrepreneurs are on and obviously very early in your in your academic studies you were thinking differently right around you know combining buddhism and, and what if it's not all about profitability so how did you find that experience then and, and what would you say has changed now in terms of uh the the scene considering you're, you've become an entrepreneur oh gosh um i think there is one real complexity in this question for me is that my experience is in two fundamentally different contexts. So when I started in consulting in 2009, um, this was just after the financial crash, right? And so okay. it, was a con- it, was, it was a difficult time for anything sustainability because I had basically come back to Belgium after a year of traveling in South America looking for jobs in this area. Um, and I think I arrived back in Belgium on the day that uh, Lemon Brothers uh, went belly up. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. And as a consequence, like most, and the fact, despite the fact that I had two degrees, spoke four languages, had all this interesting experience, like I couldn't get a job for the life of me. And I was also very kind of constrained in terms wow. of, like, I didn't want to go corporate. I didn't want to go to the big four. So like, I really want to work for a, fo- like a sustainability uh, focused company, but there were not too many opportunities. A year later, I finally got the chance to work at this company. And I think what they were really good at, and this was, um, and this was very interesting at the time, was they were doing CSR reporting, mm-hmm. so which is still a very big field and which in 2009 in Europe was becoming quite a big thing already. When you compare that to, to Asia, where, we're now, where we are now, when I had my first conversations in 2016, 2017 with some of the big companies here, I realized that the conversations I was having here were less less advanced than the conversations I was having in 2009 in Belgium and in the Netherlands. Really? Seriously? Yeah. So, and that's why I think that that's really difficult because the context is fundamentally different. Asia has mm-hmm. trailed, and I think we are catching up now in Asia, Yeah. but uh, has trailed for a long time in terms of sustainability reporting and then in general sustainability. So the other thing my consultancy was doing at the time was energy efficiency. Yeah. And of course, even after the financial crisis, this was one of the first areas that became a big area for companies to engage with, right? Because energy efficiency and then as an outflow of that also waste optimization are basically cost efficiency procedures. And if you can implement energy management systems, you can just save costs. So the ROI is not something that's really up in the air. It's quite predictable. We can evaluate it ex ante. And if you can have financing, either debt financing or you have enough capital, then it's pretty straightforward and most companies should be doing this. What I was interested in was not the sustainability reporting, which for me was too much at the end of the funnel and kind of post change uh, and not really the energy efficiency because that was not my expertise. What I was interested in was how do we connect this to innovation? Because from then on, I had this idea that, look, if you really want companies to become more sustainable, what you need to do is fundamentally engage with the core business processes and with the core value proposition of the company. And so what we started doing together with a design firm and a waste recycling firm was 
develop, I would say, prototypes of collaborative, sustainable business models that uh, we could implement with a variety of companies in order to really go at the fundamentals of what is going on in the business. So the biggest thing we set up at the time was in collaboration with the Flemish Research Institute for Technology, one of the universities, and then Philips, the, the TV manufacturing mm -hmm. uh, entity, um, a waste recycler called Ranganzuinkel, and then a Japanese company, I don't even remember the name, <laughs> but they were specialized in building adhesives that could be heated up and then uh, fall apart. And so the idea was, how do we create a television that's genuinely cradle to cradle? Okay. So this was the early days, I think, of the kind of cradle to cradle revolution, which really happened in the Netherlands and my company was yeah. Dutch. So that was like a narrative that was becoming quite popular. And so we did work on this and on these kind of um, and on these business models. So these collaborative business models. And so we set up a couple of those projects. And the reality is, if I look at that now, that work that we were doing then, which was probably very pioneering and was also considered within my firm to be like the vanguard of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And I look at what is happening now in Asia, or at least with the companies that I've been, that the big companies that I've been interacting with, we're not there yet. Yeah. That shift in terms of business models and really embedding business models um, and sustainability in the business model and embedding regenerative practices in the business model is still very early days. I think I think the numbers um, support that. If you look at the venture investment world and what's happening in terms of impact alone type opportunities, if you want to call it that, there's 39 billion uh, USD just last year invested in so-called impact companies, right? But if you look at the split between Europe, North America, and Asia in terms of the percentage of impact as an overall venture investment, then I think Europe's at 14% and uh, North America's around 10, Asia's 4%. So, you know, what you're saying does does yep. make sense that overall, um, you know, there is some way for it to go. But I think what you're building with Handprint and, uh, you know, the process side and, and, and some of the opportunities will be there for Asia to catch up. It's just kind of, I, I don't want to say, oh, of course, Asia is massively generalized, generalizing as, it, <laughs> as is Europe, right? But at, at the end of the day, it is, yeah, you know, when you're looking at regeneration, that's a very in-place thing. It's a very localized thing. And, and so, yeah, we should look in that context. Now, before we get into Hamprint, the Mangrove Trust, because I feel like that is kind of a step on the way to Hamprint in a way, and, and some of the work you were doing True. around understanding how much NGO dollars, you know, goes to to projects, etc., and, and and these kind of things. I'd love you to touch on those areas because because um, sure. you know mangroves are kind of super superpowers for us to uh, help get ourselves out of some of our problems potentially. I mean, mangroves are miracle trees, right? So, um, yeah, so the Mangrove Trust, the Global Mangrove Trust, was set up uh, by, by Ryan Merrill and myself in 2017 as a, an outflow of an academic project that we were doing here at SMU, where we were looking at innovation in the natural world in Southeast Asia. And the most interesting project we visited was an NGO in Myanmar called Worldview International Foundation that was doing mangrove restoration at the Thor Heyerdahl Park, which is at the Bay of Bengal, so which is that piece of land that basically where you have sea in between India, Bangladesh and, uh, and Myanmar. And so they were doing mangrove restoration there, but they were also had experimented with Lika, which is a fintech company too, and they were they had launched one of the first uh, natural capital backed assets for fundraising. So they created a mm -hmm. tree coin, raised a million dollars using that. And they were experimenting with a group out of Oxford called 
carbon engineering that was had basically repurposed drones to shoot seedlings into the ground okay. to accelerate the velocity of planting. Mm -hmm. And so when we were there, and then and there was a team from Al Jazeera as well, it was just an incredible seven-day experience of working around the mangroves with this incredible team from, Ox from Car uh, Oxford Carbon Engineering, with the people from Lika who were there as well, then Ryan and I were there, and then the people from Al Jazeera. So it was really interesting, but we were also uh, roaming around the forest. And so we got back from that experience and then ended up going back to Myanmar a couple more times, really realizing that, okay, this is an incredibly powerful natural capital asset. It is arguably the most powerful technology we currently have to engage in carbon sequestration, uh, especially when you look at cost and carbon carbon returns. Mm -hmm. So, but we realized that there's a lot of, and that's really because of the, the conversations we were having with the, the founder of that organization, a, a Norwegian elderly man who's probably like mid-80s now, Arno Fjortoft, who's still running that organization, said that the, the big complexity is access to international climate funding, right? So if you're a small organization in, in Myanmar and you want to get international climate funds to send you ideally millions of dollars to do incredibly important regenerative works, it's very, very difficult. And so uh, Ryan and I started thinking quite deeply about what is the, the carbon credit market and how does this currently work? And we were commissioned by the United Nations and uh, DBS Bank, uh, Bank here in Singapore, to write a report on sustainable digital finance in, in Asia. And so one of the things we really looked at was this carbon crediting market. And I mean, it's obviously more nuanced than this, but the key takeaway was that when you look at the purchase of a carbon credit by an end user, and an end user here is typically a corporate that wants to retire the carbon credit mm -hmm. to make a claim that it is carbon neutral or has reduced sufficient carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you agree with those claims, I just want to table that for a while. But the reality, what we found is that up to 80% of the price that that corporate pays for that carbon credit does not reach local communities. Up to 80% doesn't get there. So so roughly 20% so, uh, is guaranteed, but everything well, above that is kind of... All... And, and guaranteed is then still, uh, there's no there's no transparency in this market. Right. So nothing is really guaranteed. But we realized that there is a lot of fat in yeah. that market. And it doesn't mean that those intermediary services, which are a lot about validation, verification, mm -hmm. um, have no value because they do. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a lot of reselling. Right. And that basically just means you get companies buying these things as speculators, waiting for six months and then selling them at a higher price. Right? So it's like buying and selling a car, I guess, if you if you think of a set that most cars are depreciating, maybe a classic car. It's but... more like art or, or vineyards. Okay, right. right so right. That, uh, that might appreciate over time. And yeah. so we realized that this is really a big challenge. And if we want to find a solution that could enable peer-to-peer -peer purchases so that we don't need to have all of these intermediaries in place, then that would potentially increase impact by 5x without increasing costs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. and, and from a climate perspective, that seemed like a worthy goal. Yeah. And, and that's how we started. So we set up Global Mangrove Trust and I was kind of forced into it because um, I, I was an academic and I was happy being an academic, although I was a little bit frustrated with the lack of real world impact. But Ryan very proactively set up the Global Mangrove Trust and then came to me and said, oh, by the way, I've made you a director of this company, so <laughs> you're in. And I was like, okay, fine, so let's get started. Amazing. Um, 
and then yeah, we, then we started working on you know, okay, how do we now try to solve some of these problems? And we focused on two different areas. So one was peer-to-peer architecture that would enable direct funding, and so yeah. that we worked with Zilliqa, a blockchain company out of Singapore, and oh, with yeah. DBS, yeah. the bank again, to uh, create a prototype of this initial architecture. And then the second thing that we realized was that the the verification process that currently dominates uh, carbon crediting is extremely labor-intensive and is very analog. Right. So the companies that are almost the the guardians of truth in mm-hmm. the nature-based solution space, uh, like Gold Standards and like Vera, the two most famous ones, but then you have yeah. Plan Vivo, a few others, ACR, you have Red Plus. And, yeah. and so these uh, organizations were set up in an analog age. Right. And so the processes and bureaucracies that they have developed are attuned to that develop to that analog age and are not very able to quickly iterate with new technologies and so my own and and also ryan's like our own studies of like the history of innovation we always knew kind of intuitively and also from research that when new technologies come around and disrupt the status quo incumbent organizations even if they see the writing on the wall don't have the capability to become the disruptor. Very true. Often the case. Mostly the case. There are very few examples where this isn't, uh, where, I mean, where companies have managed to really disrupt their own business models because there is this notion of that if you have developed a business, you, you, you build routines, you hire people, you have all of these things in place that are very valuable assets, but then you suddenly get this disruption and then those people are not agents of that disruption and they're yep. trying to protect their turf yep. and they're trying to keep their processes in place and what makes them great or what made them great might become what makes them vulnerable. Simon, I used to work for BlackBerry. So. Okay, well, <laughs> I mean, you understand what that is. And, 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 so, and so I think this is really why we said, okay, we're going to do this kind of space-based uh, uh, verification. We started working with a company here in Singapore called Kumi, yep. uh, which is a space-based machine learning organization that specializes in the monitoring of the natural world and so yeah with the global mangrove trust so we now are working on a new type of carbon credits uh, with the support of oxford university to uh, that really just looks at a methodology of uh, verifying and creating these carbon credits in a way that is significantly less labor intensive Mm -hmm. less sensitive to disruptions from stuff like the pandemic lots of the carbon crediting agencies uh, have basically been flat-footed because of the pandemic because they can't send their people to the forest to verify what's happening because of travel limitations and so you create a lot of delays and so we're trying to work out a new regime specifically for blue carbon so for mangroves and yeah that's really that all that work which is now still ongoing is at the core of uh, what handprint became in 2020 amazing i'd love to talk more about what it takes actually to to get to get mangroves going but i really want to get stuck into to handprint so i think first of all can you just explain to the listeners what at its core handprint does yeah so i mean at its core, I think handprint is the opposite of footprint, right? So footprint is the sum of all the negative things you do in the world that kind of destroy the planet. And handprint is the sum of all the good things you do in the world that save the planet. And and that is a scientific term that we somewhat appropriated and turned into a business. And so what handprint ambitions to be is the sustainability infrastructure for the digital world, Web 2 and Web 3. And so the core of what we do 
can be understood in two ways. On the one side, we work as a commercial agent for NGOs. So we bring NGOs onto a digital platform. We digitize their service offerings and we work with them to transform their, the work that they do into discrete units of impact. For reforestation, that's pretty easy. It could be a tree planted, a square meter of forest preserved. Mm -hmm. For social impact, that's harder, right? So okay. it could be um, one hour of education provided, uh, helped one person escape sexual slavery and given them education and food for a week. So we're yeah. trying to create these discrete units of impact that we can then tokenize. And so what we do with the NGOs is kind of work with them and provide direct funding for them to be able to do their regenerative activities, initially purely environmental, now also social. And then the other side of Handprint, which operates as a multi-sided market, is that we engage with companies to say, you can contribute to these NGOs. So we do kind of fundraising for them. But we also realized that simply doing fundraising for an NGO has been done. Mm -hmm. And we still have climate change. We still have biodiversity collapse. We still have the UN SDGs and all of these problems. So this doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't work well enough. And so what we are trying, what we realized is that if we can embed like micro donations or embed little handprints, little positive impacts into the transaction infrastructure of an organization, mm -hmm. regardless of what that transaction actually is, then suddenly what you get is that a company can communicate at a critical moment of engagement with a stakeholder mm -hmm. that they're doing something good. And that changes the relationship. Interesting. So, so a simple example, and this is the most popular example that we see in the digital age, is that um, at the moment of checkout in an e-commerce store, mm -hmm. a company can demonstrate using a plugin like Handprint or one of our many competitors saying that, okay, hey, we're doing something good for the world. 1% of the purchase you're making is going to this project that we've chosen. And as a consequence, the consumer realizes if I click this purchase button, something good is going to happen. And then, of course, you have to make sure that it's transparent, that the money flows are clear, that the consumer doesn't feel deceived, the impact has to be yeah. real. But in essence, that's what's happening, right? And, it's, and you can compare this and, and think about what, what is the difference between doing this and a company saying, oh, 1% of our revenue in general mm. is going to be rerouted to good positive impact projects, like the 1% for the planet and yeah. these kind of things. And so both, like, almost saying in terms of costs, will be identical. Mm. But in terms of what you're doing with your customer, it's very different. Because you're putting the, what, what Handprint does, and um, by putting it at the moment of decision making, mm. it changes the way consumers think about your brand. And it changes the engagement that you have with your brand. And then, of course, you create a follow-on digital experiences. So a month later, then the brand can say, hey, the trees have been planted. Look at this. Or we've removed X kilo, from, X kilo of plastic from the ocean. Here are some pictures of that. So yeah. we're trying to really close that loop so that you create more credibility, more engagement, and then hopefully collective action. Amazing. I think... You know, one of the big challenges around, well, the, the huge challenges that we face and one of the big problems with it is you can feel like, first of all, it's insurmountable or it's too vague, right? It's like, I'm just one person and, and you know, as a consumer, it feels like all the time it's put on us. The, the, the plastic sure. in the ocean, if we buy a bottle of Coke or whatever, um, you know, unfortunately, even if you put it in the recycle bin, we still, we still know what's going to happen. And what's super interesting, I think, about what you just said is that it gives companies that aren't, you know, immediately associated around making CO2 or produce. I'm thinking like, OK, let's take the example of flying. We all, you know, occasionally have to fly um, and we go to 
buy our ticket and there'll be a there'll be a thing at the checkout and I'm always amazed at how cheap that <laughs> that is right if you fly like I mean I'm in Singapore if I see my family in the UK it says do you want to offset your flight mm-hmm. um, depending on what airline you take it's it's often like a couple of pounds or a pound or something I'm like well that can't be right first of all it can't it to can't me, be this to, cheap to, to me it couldn't it can't really be that I'm traveling neutral and mm-hmm. and of course offsets which we kind of touched yeah. on is is kind of funny accounting anyway but the the interesting thing is, you know, if I do make that transaction with Hamprint or if I, sorry, I make the transaction as normal with the airline in that example, but Hamprint actually tracks and shows the incremental things that happen with the donation. Is, is that fair? That is fair, but there, there is something else I think that is more important, right? So when you do this with an airline in yeah. the in the let's say in the classic way what basically happens is that the air, the airline and um, i mean we're not picking specifically on airlines here but that the airline asks you please put money into a black box and trust us we're going to do something exactly. good with yeah, it yeah. right and that money is becomes from is basically a gift to the airline right? it's okay. like you're making a donation to the airline you're just paying more okay. right and what is not interesting in for us what, what what we think is really a problem here is that what you need to do is give people ownership Mm-hmm. So if you're doing this on handprint, you could actually say, yes, I'm going to do this. But that impact that I'm creating is part of my handprint. I own right. that. And right. in the, so we're working on a mobile app and you'll be able in the future, it's not ready yet, but in the, you'll be able to track your own handprint across all kinds of platforms that are using our technology to say, this is the good thing that I'm doing. And so in what we love to say in, in maybe two years when you're applying for a job in a company that cares about the environment, which hopefully will be every company, they'll ask, okay, what did you study? What's your experience and what's your handprint? And show me what you've done, right? And, and show me how your own decisions and your behavior have made a positive impact in the world. And right now, that positive impact accounting mm-hmm. is, doesn't exist. Yeah. You just can't do this, or you might, you, or you must collect like a bunch of PDF documents that, um, oh yeah, I've planted a tree there, and then I've given fifty dollars for whatever this good cause, and then claim tax benefits. But if we, if we're able to create a centralized way of accounting for that and owning that, and then making it shareable so that it can create collective action, so that mm-hmm. you can put it on TikTok or Instagram and kind of challenge your friends to do something similar. Once you use these kind of mechanisms to um, to create positive change, it becomes a lot more uh, tangible for people. And I think it will also become much more valuable for organizations. And that's really, like, we're not anti-capitalist, right? It's not because I started off doing Buddhism and economics that I don't think there is value in the, in the capitalist system. But I do think there is, um, we need to be able to activate those core human drivers mm-hmm. right uh, in order to achieve like planetary health yeah and and the footprint approach if i just like round this off like the footprint approach that has been dominating the way we think about this for the last 30 40 years is an approach that's essentially focused on guilt yeah right <laughs> so the way that that works is saying like um, you've done all of this horrible stuff mm-hmm. simply by virtue of living yeah and you need to buy indulgences for your sins, right? Yeah. And psychological research tells us that if you want to shock people into action, making them feel guilty is highly effective. Okay. But if you want to engage people into sustained action, right. making them feel guilty backfires. Because people want to get rid of the guilt 
So in the short run, they yep. can say, okay, I'm going to do something and I'm going to feel better. But if this is constantly pushed on people, then people zone out and yeah. people just opt out of the narrative completely, which is actually what we see. Really? So, so that's why I think the handprint narrative, which is a story of abundance, which is much more focused on, hey, we, everyone can do something good. Yeah. Hey, you don't have to be a company that makes things or move things and has, a, as a consequence, a big carbon footprint yeah. to do something good. Yeah. You can be a service company or a digital company or a podcast and say, yeah. Hey, for every hundred listeners, we're going to plant a tree. That's yeah. our commitment. We don't necessarily care about exactly what the carbon footprint is of producing this podcast. Yeah. Because first of all, you can't change that anyway. Yeah. Right. And so why would you spend money and time on figuring out exactly how much damage you do? And you can say, well, it's easier for me to do something good. And that's probably going to be more engaging. Yeah. So that's really, yeah, that's how we think about this and what we're trying to uh, yeah, change yeah I, I, I mean, it's a super good point around the guilt side because there is just a certain amount <laughs> that people can take and then they're just like, well, look, kind of almost checking out of the problem. Like, it's too big of a problem for me to fix sure. as a consumer. And I think what's cool about what, you, what you're offering or what you're, what you're doing with your marketplace is the burden isn't on the consumer. It's actually you're enabling existing businesses with their own processes to tap into your infrastructure or, or, or your platform essentially so that they can then align their values to potential opportunities that, that create create regenerative practices or right. social better social improvements and things so uh, who are your first customers and who are the kind of customers that are kind of attracted by this would you say so, I mean, we initially set out really focusing just on e-commerce because mm. we started at the moment of a lockdown or a circuit breaker, as it was known in Singapore because of COVID. And so everything was basically e-commerce. We said, this is going to be the first product we will build. Yeah. But we got a lot of interest from completely unrelated companies in, our, in their kind of core technology. And so what we realized was... What we have built for e-commerce, where basically you have a financial transaction and that triggers a positive change, that yeah. triggers a little handprint. We could use that and create a much more universal tool that can link to any kind of transaction. So, and, and that basically means that any type of company, even if you're not in e-commerce, could suddenly do this. So one of the first really successful things we did in that in that phase was with um, was with Lazada, an e-commerce organization, one of mm -hmm. the biggest here in uh, in Singapore, but one of the biggest in Asia. And so they were doing an online event, and they said, "Okay, we want to do something with you guys. We really like what you're doing, but integrating your capabilities into the checkout of Lazada that's that's asking a lot, right? This is massive development, massive design." Uh, a massive commitment from a massive brand. So they're like, no, we don't do this, but we want to do something. So can you use your technology to just plant a tree automatically for every person that comes to the event? <laughs> and so we did a one tree per RSVP API okay. like system. <laughs> and, and so that was one of the first ones, but then we realized we can do this for anything, right? Mm -hmm. So now we have clients that are uh, doing this for newsletter signups. We have clients that say, okay, for every hundred unique website visitors that visit our website in a month, we're going to plant a tree. And so we, build the technology behind it and yeah. then kind of visualize that up front. I was going to ask though, yeah. um, how does that practically work then? So we, I set the, as the, as the business, the, I say, Hey, I want to plant a tree for every person that comes to this event. Mm. And you know, 300 people came, let's say um, you, you track that and then you say, well, it's a dollar or two or whatever mm. the, the cost is per tree. And then, but you know, 
we've simplified everything down to planting trees, haven't we? Yeah, a little bit more, in because like there's a good way to do it and a bad way to do it. And so, how sure. do you pick your partners? How do you even know that that tree's been been planted? Sure. So, I mean, on the one side, so how it works in terms of technology is that we are not transferring money every time a micro event happens because transferring money is very expensive. Okay. So we are transferring data. Right. So every kind of digital event that happens that triggers a message to us sends us a message that says this company supports this project for this value uh, at this time. You're keeping a ledger of, We're keeping of a ledger, micro yeah, transactions. And potentially seen by this customer, okay. depending on data agreements and so. And so what we then do is we aggregate all these messages at the end of the week or at the end of the month, we send an invoice mm -hmm. and either automatically charge the credit card of the, cl of the client or get a bank transfer in. And then we send uh, the money to the NGOs that they are, that they are choosing. Mm -hmm. And then we do some active monitoring there as well, right? So okay. the NGOs that we're working with typically in uh, Southeast Asia, now in Africa, soon in South America as well. So there is a whole due diligence process that happens in the background that is kind of uh, not very transparent to client, but of yeah. course, which is uh, rooted in our own expertise of running an NGO in this space, but also learning as we do by um, yeah, bringing these NGOs on board, working with them for weeks to go from how they normally work, which is basically uh, give me a lot of money and we'll do good stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, which is how yeah. most NGOs work. And then yeah. at the end of the year, we'll send you a report that's kind of broadly outlines all of the stuff we've done, yeah. but you don't have a one-to-one -one kind of accountability framework yeah. towards something that is, okay, let's define a unit of impact. Uh, here is a mobile app that we created for you. Use this to do reporting in terms of images from the project, mm -hmm. give regular updates. You can send pictures, you can send videos, you can send tweets, oh. and all of that um, appears on the platform. And then yeah. corporate clients that finance those things can actually access those, put them in their EDMs, put it on their website. Right. Um, so it's connecting, it's really connecting yeah, yeah. to where, where the good stuff is happening yeah. back into, first of all, the the sponsor, which is the the kind of company, but but ultimately the consumer. The right? end consumer. Because yeah. the consumer is making decisions about all the time, uh, you know, be in the supermarket or sure. what, whether they, you know, cycle, take the car or do whatever, right? But they, they also, you've got the kind of burden of requirement all the time to be thinking about how you live your life in a way. It's just nice if you can say, what if I add up all these micro good transactions mm -hmm. that I'm doing and could have a have a like see at the end of the year all the good stuff that's come from making better choices. Absolutely. But that still creates one burden. And yeah. I think that is interesting as well. And so we're working hard on this because one burden is still that the consumer has to make better choices yeah. every time. Yeah. And this is really hard. And so we've seen this with some research done at Lazada that uh, they found that like 60, I think the numbers were about 68% of respondents to this research that they did in Southeast Asia want to buy products that are more sustainable, but right. less than 4% actually do. And so, wow. <laughs> and, and so, and, and this has two potential explanations. Yeah. One is people say that they care, but they don't give a shit. Right. That is an option. That's a genuine option. Yeah. But a much more likely scenario is people care, but their willingness to incur very high search costs and potentially premium pricing yeah. is still limited. Yeah. So, and that's why I think it's so important that if you and if you integrate the the positive mm -hmm. into the transaction itself, this becomes non-problematic. So, what we are working on with uh, with Idemia, Idemia is a company that most of us like won't know, but is one of the biggest 
technology companies that works with banks and develops the technology for uh, bank cards and identification. Okay. So we're working with them on a prototype for regenerative credit cards. So where an, an, a consumer could opt in to say, I'm going to have a credit card that every month charges me $2 extra to mm. plant trees. Or I'm going to have a credit card that every payment I do rounds up for the planet or, yeah. or something like this, right? And there's companies out there that have done something like this. I think I signed up for TreeCard, which is an Ecosia spin-off maybe. Yeah, or, or TreeCard. But um, the, the problem with those things is they're not often where you are. <laughs> that so. is, well, not where we are. So you have TreeCard famously, you've yeah. got Aspiration, yeah. um, which kind of raised like a, a stupid amount of money with just this thing. Um, Stupidly big, I assume. Yeah, <laughs> $315 million. Okay. Um, so, I mean, great, because I think it's, a, it's, an awesome, it's an awesome concept. But for us, it's one of like 10 uh, business verticals. Yeah. And, and by working with these partners, and for us, it's a big part of our, our approach to business is that we don't necessarily need to be front-end like mm. the main thing that consumers recognize. I mean, we'd happily be a consumer brand, yeah. but we'd much rather be a B2B facilitator, like an infrastructure, as I said, yeah. for the digital world, so that Idemia can go to its clients, which is 40% of banks in the world, and yeah. say, hey, we have this now, you can well. do this. And then you talk about exponential scaling it yeah. at a rate that like any kind of startup wants to do but can't do because yeah. we can outsource kind the market the, the invisible rails the, the existing yeah. technological glue that's kind of just transactions are happening daily exactly. right you just want to tap into that huge huge you know, market marketplace and and be able to you know yeah. just just make inroads without having to convince consumers uh, to try, I mean, try something new. We'd happily convince consumers, but it is all about making the good choice, like a singular event. Say, mm -hmm. I'm going to get this credit card, and then I know yeah. all of my payments are going to do something good in the world. Mm -hmm. Or like we're working also in the remittance space, in the microcredit space. Mm -hmm. We're even working in advertising, yeah. which is really exciting because advertising, all brands do advertising. Yeah. It, but ads also have a negative impact because they require, like, I mean, you basically need some kind of data data centers and so so there is yeah. a footprint and there's a yeah. lot of interest now in the advertising industry to exactly determine what the footprint is of putting an ad on someone's mobile phone and every time i talk to an advertising company i say what a fucking waste of time <laughs> <Beep>. <laughs> it's a podcast i'm assuming i can cut and because and i think it's a waste of time because unless if you as a brand are absolutely committed to minimize your the footprint of all of your activities. And if you're finding out that putting an ad on TV or putting an ad on a bus stop or putting an ad on a phone or at the, um, has a very high footprint and as a consequence, you won't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. It really is going to change your strategy. Then doing the calculation just makes no sense. You're just spending money on information that you can't act on. And that's the case for most advertising companies, right? So what we are building with, with Teats is the capability to say, okay, you're going to have an ad campaign, you're paying for 100,000 impressions and you don't know how many engagement you get, which is kind of the typical trade-off. What if you can just make something that says, okay, for every 100 engagements that we get with this ad campaign, we're going to plant 10 trees or we're going to plant a coral, mm -hmm. right? And so we've built this, this capability with Teats, which is uh, basically an ad platform that puts advertising on all kinds of publishers, like Straits Times here in Singapore, many yeah. of the newspapers in the UK, all of those websites. So they put the ads there, right? So, and then, but then you have a real capability to measure what the impact is, because you can see whether or not people engage, and you can put you can put your normal ad, creative your ads that says whatever 
brand X is advertising its product, mm. but on top of the ad, they can say in small letters, this ad plants trees. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Which and is that's interesting. In a way. And that is very powerful, yeah. right? And so these are the things that we are doing again there at the infrastructure mm. level. They're not really supposed to be in your face. They're not yeah. really supposed to be very actively uh, engaging customers or forcing them to really think deeply, mm. but they can trigger curiosity. And yeah. I think that's really what we're trying to do. Um, and this is like, if you're, you're asking before about our, yeah. the clients that we're working with, like most of the, the, the organizations we're working with now are in this space where they're looking for new types of services to sell to their customers. Yeah. So we moved from a primary B2, uh, we're selling to e-commerce brands, so very and B2C brands, mm-hmm. to now working with a lot of B2B brands that use Handprint as a differentiation engine. Wow. Because they think that the customers that they're onboarding uh, want to see some sort of environmental social commitment in, in, in the business, baked into the processes of the business or the revenue streams of the business. And I know you've got a few different ways. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a transaction. It can be a percentage of revenue. It yeah. can be like, so I think that's the cool thing. I mean, is there a danger that I think we're all exhausted by greenwashing by all these different companies? Is there a danger? Do you have a think that, that what you're building could be kind of, I don't know, used kind of a little bit too much um, by, by the brands that you're selling into? Or, or, or do you think it's kind of like everyone doing something is a good, good start and by, by everyone stepping up, if you, wanna, if you really want to you know, change things, then you're, you're, you're going to have to kind of raise your game even more in the environmental side. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I have a controversial opinion on, on greenwashing. So I once wrote an article, it's available on Medium. It's called Why We Need More Greenwashing, Not Less. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and the argument is not that greenwashing is a great thing, but the argument is that greenwashing uh, creates public accountability. And brands get called out. And the evidence suggests that when brands get called out on greenwashing, they clean up their act. Right. So that's why I said we probably need more. So, of this. so more people kind of pushing pushing the boundaries ends up with foots in mouths and with yeah. regulators coming down on them saying, hey, "For instance, sort yourself out." Yeah. So it is really about public accountability and yeah. kind of scrutiny. Now, what I think, and this is also really kind of instrumental in the way Handprint works, is that we focus on positive impact, mm-hmm. and so we strongly advise our clients to not buy into the narrative that they're doing something bad and they're using handprint to compensate for that or to offset their emissions. Offsetting bad stuff, the guilt yeah, stuff. The guilt stuff. So yeah. we always advise against this, yeah. but of course we can't control the narrative that our clients uh, yeah. are going to use. Yeah. Right? So, But what we're very clear about, for instance, we've just done this with uh, Startup Bootcamp Australia. It's a very mm-hmm. small example, but I think it is relevant. So they came to us and so we were part of Startup Bootcamp Australia mm-hmm. and, um, and they came to us like, oh, we're doing this event. Um, we're getting 25 people People to go whatever drive over there and do something and um, and we want to offset the emissions associated with the event and I said well go buy carbon credits we yeah. don't sell those at the moment on the platform oh, but we want to work with you guys I said okay but you can't then it's not an offset mm-hmm. what you can do is say we can do an estimation like course estimation of what is the environmental impact of organizing this event and so yeah. we and we did that it's very simple it's quite simple but it's just an estimate mm-hmm. and then we say like look what you can do with handprint is draw down like sufficient carbon Mm -hmm. to compensate or to kind of neutralize the emissions associated with this event but because we support regeneration that drawdown is happening in the future yeah right yeah there is a time difference right like if i drive my car today and then 
and you plant I, I, a tree and I plant a tree and wait 30 years <laughs> then yeah. all good but so and so what we agreed then I think and this is a, this is I think an interesting approach is saying like okay what, what we're going to count towards your drawdown uh, because they, of course, want to say it's a carbon neutral event because that's now a narrative that resonates. Yes. Say, okay, so we're only going to count a drawdown up until 2030. Okay. So eight years in the future, because by 2030, you have to do a lot. So yeah. by uh, given the average survival rates of the trees, all of these things are accounted for. Mm -hmm. By 2030, you will have planted enough trees to make sure that this event um, has kind of is neutral. Mm -hmm. right? But it also means that those trees will still continue growing for another 15, 20 years, and then that's all net gains for the planet. Yes. Right, so we're working on these ideas around uh, regenerative events, regenerative campaigns, regenerative uh, whatever actions, um, where we limit the time of drawdown to a specific number of years. And the shorter that number of years, of course, the more ambitious the company will be. Yeah. Um, and I think, and then if you create a lot of nature positive actions right because yeah. everything that happens after 2030 then yeah. is basically Suddenly a net gain for the earth totally yeah and and i think there's tons of companies there you know it is a kind of journey that they're on and and at the moment it's all about esg and and sustainability and sustainability is kind of doing less harm in a way isn't it? it's trying to kind Absolutely. of find a way to make your business model work in an environment where um you know we're just having a massive impact we've crossed five out of nine of the planetary boundaries and such things right so yeah i think it's it's super valuable if if you know companies can start becoming regenerative more embedded in inside mm. their kind of business models and things but is it just e-commerce companies is it just off uh, sorry the digital world that can can benefit from what you're doing have you explored um absolutely uh, the offline world <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we're now, we started, um, I mean, it's not announced yet, so I, ca I can't name any names, but we are starting our first POS integration, which is really exciting. So that so basically... point of sale. Point of sale for retail. Yeah. That's going to be the first uh, step. So this is obviously still a digital integration, but it is in physical stores that people will have the option to either opt in to pay more or by default 1% will be added and then so for all the stores that will use that POS system, mm -hmm. uh, they'll have this capability suddenly activate it and then they can either choose to do something with it or yeah. they don't but they will be able to the other thing we're doing is we're uh, talking to a variety of alcohol brands strangely enough it's all alcohol brands um, <laughs> to embed our capabilities into yeah. physical products so and the simplest way of thinking about this is that we add a qr code on the packaging the mm -hmm. consumer can scan this qr code and uh, that creates a digital experience where they say, hey, uh, for instance, this is, we're talking about a champagne brand. Okay, this mm -hmm. bottle of champagne plants four trees, okay. right? And so the way this works in the initial setup, and I think this is really cool. The initial setup is the brand basically gives us a monthly estimate of how many bottles they think they'll sell. Right. They plant the trees for those bottles. At the end of the, the, the month, we do a reconciliation. We say, okay, how many have actually been sold? Uh, and then we change the uh, That's estimate. That's way better. That's like from, you know, the description we were just talking about mm -hmm. where you're driving a car and then you're yeah. you know, obviously you're kind of looking at what your existing demand is and you're, you're immediately saying, yeah. hey, let's, let's go. But the cool thing is, is what happens next. So the brand does this and let's say over a, a period of time, it collects a lot of trees, right? It's, it's basically planted a lot of trees. Now, the digital experience enables the customer that buys this bottle to actually claim ownership of that tree. <laughs> it, rem it remains linked to the brand, right? but it, the customer becomes the owner, yeah. right? So, because I bought the bottle, yeah. whether it's in a, in a restaurant or in a store, 
I become the owner of the, of the impact and it yeah. remains linked to the brand. Now, not every customer is going to do that. Yeah. So that gives the brand a spare capacity. And even if, if you assume 50% of people do this, then it yeah. still has half of its trees that it can use to gamify the experience with customers who do care. Right. So they can hand out extra trees. They can say, hey, if you buy another one, we're going to give you 10 trees. Wow. So it becomes a very powerful tool for marketing. Then. Yeah. And so these are the kind of uh, interactions between the, the real world and the digital world and then the natural world that we're trying to create so that the people that are interested and that are willing to, or they're interested in kind of storing this or having this ownership um, are able to do that. And then that they are rewarded for this in terms of new loyalty programs, new benefits, uh, and potentially just new impact. And it, it kind of kind of becomes embedded deeply into their offering in a way, in, in, into their, also their marketing. And I, I mean, I exactly. can imagine photos of me underneath a, a, my mini orchard of uh, <laughs> champagne bottles. I hope I have that in the, in the future. Um, <laughs> so you don't actually physically own the tree the land is somewhere i mean i guess they choose where it is as well right so if it's a, if it's champagne it could be a french orchard it, although it's probably more expensive to plant yeah. trees in france and definitely in the champagne region sure but um but, so either the brand can choose yeah um or if they want so there are some uh, we're, we're looking at some of those implementations where they could actually give the customer the choice yeah to say like oh okay, we're supporting a variety of impacts you can allocate this budget yeah to one of those five projects that we've shortlisted. Right. So that's also an option. And this is really the option that we're exploring with the, with the regenerative credit cards, yeah. where you'd have a bank say, okay, we're going to opt into this ecosystem. Uh, we're going to shortlist a bunch of projects either that are close to us or the ones that we really care about that align yeah. with our values. But we're going to allow our customers to make an informed decision. Do they want to support reforestation? If so, do they want to plant a tree in the, I mean, in their vicinity, yeah. or do they want to plant a tree that absorbs ten times more carbon? Okay, right? yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, and I think that's also interesting because not only does it, 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 it basically by giving people choice, you potentially force them to think about it, and that, that's why this doesn't work at the checkout. You yeah. don't want to get people to, I mean, brands don't want that to say, oh, which of these five projects? Oh, I need to do some research on this, uh, and then you don't yeah, buy. Yeah, no, you right? just parallelly be like, yeah. oh, I, I would completely be like oh i exactly. can't buy this right now exactly just give me a week while i go and research each one of these projects and work out exactly which yeah. obviously is not what an e-commerce store wants no, so they completely. want to you don't want to slow down the checkout experience but yeah. you could do it afterwards yeah you yeah. could say hey your your contribution or your purchase regenerates two dollars uh, in the okay. earth yeah. here are five options you can choose and it's a new touch point it's a new engagement and yeah. again it's about changing that relationship to saying we are doing this together yeah and that idea of collective action I think is so much more powerful than a philanthropy arm of an existing company that kind of works it's like hey, we're doing we're sending some money left and right and then we're putting yeah. this in a sustainability report but that's not collective action that no. doesn't really use the power of marketing to change the world that's just yeah i'm doing something good and i'm communicating about it a little bit but if you bring it front and center it becomes much more engaging but Massively. it also is the complexity it is and it like I mean, champagne's a great example because you want to pop a champagne feeling joy, at exactly. a celebratory moment, a birth, a, a wedding, a, yeah. a whatever birthday. And you don't want to be going, oh, what's the carbon, <laughs> you know, like uh, which champagne brand and all this kind of stuff. You just want to kind of enjoy, enjoy it for what it is, which is a joyous and delicious mm. uh, product. But, um, you know, this is giving the 
you know, the brand a way to really kind of align consumers around things that are meaningful to them beyond just, you know, a great experience. So I can I can really see, see that kind of potentially working. Do you think that the way this is all going, uh, what we've seen with corporates or, you know, we've obviously had policy governments, et cetera, commit to the SDGs for, for 2030 type commitments. And you've seen that then, you know, more science, science-based targets and, and net zero commitments coming from corporates towards 2030. Do you think that consumers will end up not targeted, but will be able to or wanting to kind of demonstrate that their their numbers if you if you i mean it's a bit of a kind of uh, weird concept in a way but you know just like a business would say hey we're we're offsetting this much or we're um you know we're going to be net zero by 2030 as a consumer i i want to say i'm going to plant a thousand trees for example i want to um do these things and i want to be able to uh do you think we will get to that point where people are doing it as as part of our social fabric i think that if we look at what is happening in the metaverse right now Right, in terms of the, the emergence of the desire to own digital assets, which never existed before three years ago. Yeah. Like this is a completely new thing. Right? We had crypto, but now we have uh, whatever, the first tweet of Jack Dorsey. Yeah. And like owning that asset as a kind of art form. So I think that... The explosion this, of NFT, yeah. non-fungible tokens. and So these things are going to be what is driving. So I think mm. the human desire of kind of owning claims to something, mm-hmm. right? And so in, in academic terms, we call this benefit claims for in, okay. when, you, when you think about the natural world. Like I don't own a hundred trees, no. but I've planted a hundred trees. They are community owned. I've, I've planted a lot more, but, um, <laughs> but they're community owned yeah. by various communities across the world. But I can legitimately claim that the benefits that are created by those trees are can be, are created through me, through mm-hmm. my financial contribution. And that in itself has value, right? It's the same thing totally. that companies do with a carbon credit. Yeah. But I think that what we're going to see at the corporate level is a necessity to do decarbonization and kind of all of that stuff so that we get to hopefully uh, by 2050 to a relatively carbon neutral world. But I think none of that is really driving strong differentiation because every company that takes itself somewhat seriously and that is somewhat in the public eye Mm. or that is interacting in supply chains with companies that are in the public eye will need to set those goals and will need to work towards them quite seriously unless potentially if you're in specific like regimes in North Korea or something then okay that's not going to be maybe top of your agenda but regeneration as as a as a paradigm shift or as like an addendum an expansion of the sustainability paradigm is going to be a much more powerful differentiator because it allows for much more creativity because mm-hmm. um, it's not just about carbon. There is suddenly everything, right? Everything yeah. that's good. And I think because consumers are going to be a big part of driving that already we see in the research on regeneration that consumers are willing to pay more for brands that are doing this. Uh, you see companies like Patagonia that have long, for a long time committed to doing these kind of things. So there are a lot of examples that are showing that this can be very successful uh, business. And I think the the next phase is going to be the kind of convergence of this world with the, the metaverse world where consumers want to have digital assets. And then they can, because we can think about this in like a couple of years further down the line where you're have like, I don't know, you're living in second life 
whatever the metaphor is. I, I was early on Second Life, but uh, okay. I haven't been there in a while. <laughs> no, I mean, neither have I. But so you could say, like, okay, I have all of these, these tree tokens and yeah. I have these clean ocean tokens and I've got these coral reef tokens and I'm going to work with the company or we will work with the metaverse company saying, like, yeah. you can now, that can become part of your digital property, right? right? So I think there is something to that. And hopefully at some point, like I was saying before about like, oh, if you're doing going for a job interview, people are going to ask what your handprint is. If you're looking, uh, maybe it's going to be the same when you're going on a, on a dating app. And because <laughs> like, I want to know if my values are aligned. Yeah. But you see very often now in, the, in places like the US, and I'm happily married, but yeah. you get these things like, oh yeah, um, uh, it's like, there's such uh, value uh, <laughs> positioning. Very true, right? very true. So why not? around impact like yeah, in the same way 100%. that now in the in the in the in the twitter sphere if mm -hmm. you turn your twitter image or your instagram image into an nft yeah. and you don't own it oh my god yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah. so the the provenance proving is going to be very important so i can perfectly see the same happening for uh, for for social good and for for environmental good so I think it's already happening. It's yeah, just it is, and uh, maybe not board ape. Uh, it'd be nice if all, <laughs> all the board ape money went to uh, restoration of uh, um, yeah. the, the the things for apes. But I, I um, this is just super interesting. We could probably do another whole hour on it. <laughs> how how do people find out about Handprint? What's the best way to engage with you you guys? The the website handprint.tech, and then uh, similar versions for Instagram, for for YouTube, for all of that. Um, I'm available via email at. Uh, Simon at handprint.tech and uh, yeah we're I mean we're hiring all over the world so cool. um, I think we have a team now in nine countries and we're onboarding I think two more people one person out of Canada another person so we're very multi I mean we're the tiniest multinational <laughs> like this <laughs> um, so yeah I mean we're looking for a lot of uh, yeah uh, talented people who believe in our mission so yeah if you listen to this podcast you're already doing something good because you're listening to the good disruptors and then uh, if you're interested in finding out more uh, yeah don't hesitate to reach out simon thank you very much it's been an absolute joy thanks very much rafael it was a pleasure